This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We are self-advertised on this program as a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, hence Parallax. After all, your left eye has a slightly different perspective than your right eye. When you add them together, you have full three-dimensional vision. While we can't promise 3D vision, we do think it's a good idea to look at things from a little bit different slant and or take a different approach. Thus, on last week's program, we devoted the entire hour to talking about the legendary Tom Wolfe. We used his own writing for much of it because, well, there just isn't a lot of better writing out there. We consider him such a great writer that we'll probably talk about him again in some future program. I just want to add one addendum to that discussion from last week, today, which came from his obituary in the Week magazine, which talked about how his third and fourth novels did not fare well. 2004's I Am Charlotte Simmons and 2012's Back to Blood. The Week quoted the London Times, which quoted Wolf who never lost confidence in the power of his words, is saying, quote, I regard myself in the first flight of writers, but I don't dwell on this. If anything, I think I tend to be a little modest. That's our boy, Tom Wolfe. We tend to do two types of programs here at Radio Parallax, those that are not time-stamped and those that are time-dated. We really like the former type because, well, they may be aired years later without having to worry about the fact that uh, what we're talking about is old news. Anyway, last week's program was certainly not uh, time-dated, but this program I think will be because we have so many items from what's happening piling up that warrant commentary that we're going to take the plunge. Starting with this item. According to Politico.com, leaders or state media in at least 15 countries have used the term fake news to quell dissent and discredit reports of human rights violations. Among those embracing the term, which I think we can all agree got its start with Donald Trump, are Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, and China's official newspaper, The People's Daily. The thing is, there is a lot of fake news out there. One can argue... And we have on this program that an awful lot of what you read about is something drummed up by publicists, something that was cooked up because it sounds good that is not necessarily accurate. One small case in point which we'll mention in passing was a headline in the L.A. Times about a week ago. The story was about how Robert Kennedy Jr. has now stated that he does not believe that Sirhan Sirhan killed his father. The headline was to the effect of RFK Jr. joins conspiracy theorists. We're not going to get into the RFK assassination today, although it happened 50 years ago next week. But since the official autopsy report proves that the fatal bullet was not fired by Sirhan Sirhan, you would hope that that term conspiracy theorist might be given a rest. But since, as noted in Radio Parallax, that term was first cooked up by the Central Intelligence Agency back in 1967, specifically to counter criticisms of the official report of Bobby's older brother, Jack. Well, I'd say that strays in the direction of what we might call fake news, or shall we say, slanted news. 
Evidently, some reporter got in Elon Musk's face a few days ago. Musk has said that he thinks that they should put together a group called Pravda to assess the accuracy of what's appearing in the media. When evidently someone got, evidently when someone asked him a very hostile question about whether this is going to suppress the news, Musk shot back with a rather cryptic remark of, who do you think owns the news? Anyway, back to the headlines. Evidently, George Soros is spending big money in DA races across the country. The liberal New York billionaire and evidently progressive organizations are throwing big money to challengers in Alameda, Sacramento, and San Diego counties, according to campaign finance records. Well, that's interesting, this grassroots approach of George Soros. He uh, certainly is cited by the right as a puppet master behind the scenes trying to influence things. These same people don't have the same objection, apparently, to the workings of the Koch brothers. But there's at least one right-winger who has really gone after Soros. That would, be, that would be the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban. His ruling right-wing coalition had some electoral victories of late, in, apparently in large part due to the fact that um, he was basing his campaign on the pledge of stopping Soros. should be noted that George Soros, a Jewish-Hungarian emigre, has funded civil society organizations in Hungary and across Central Europe. The Hungarian right wing promised that if they won in the election, the Stop Soros Act would be among the first bills before the new parliament. It would tax such groups as the one Soros funds at 25% and allow the Interior Ministry to shut them down. But let us return stateside and take a look at what sometimes appears in the media and ponder, as Elon Musk says, uh, who owns the media? Unless you've been in a cave the last couple of months, you would no doubt have noticed the fact that the tech companies, Facebook, Google, etc., are under fire for, well, I guess there's no way to put it other than their misuse of power. And these companies understand the importance of information and spend a lot of money to ensure, if not good coverage, at least not bad coverage. One reads editorials asking, well, is, is Google really a monopoly? The answer, of course, is no, not in the conventional sense of what the word monopoly denotes. But is it monopolistic? Well, yeah. Now, the Silicon Valley corporations are no doubt a large reason why California is now self-advertising as the world's fifth largest economy. They clearly wield a lot of power. And they're bringing lots and lots of people to California, the Bay Area in particular, and they're paying them very well. Or I guess in the case of the H-1B visas, at least better than you're going to get in Bangalore. A lot better. Unfortunately, it seems undeniable that these people are at the same time producing negative effects on housing prices, on traffic, on pollution, on congestion. But uh, this correspondent remains impressed at how the tech industry has been able to leave these two things disconnected in the public mind. This is maybe not quite on the same level as the fact that cigarettes are drugs and addicting, but it remains impressive. Case in point, let me quote from uh, East Bay Times. Here's the headline. Here's the headline from one article under the category Bay Area Jobs. Headline: Still all systems go for economy. Subheadline: Santa Clara County leads charge in employment gains, adding 7,000 jobs. East Bay adds 2,000. Article by George Avalos. The Bay Area economy rocketed to big job gains during April, adding 
5,000 jobs, an upswing that was powered by hefty employment expansions in Santa Clara County and the East Bay and the San Francisco-San Mateo areas, which all achieved record low jobless rates, state labor officials reported Friday. Santa Clara County led the charge in the April employment gains and added 7,000 jobs, while the East Bay gained 2,000 and the San Francisco-San Mateo metro area increased its job totals by 1,600, according to the State Employment Development Department. Does that strike you as a bit of cheerleading for the tech companies? No, the article doesn't state that this is mainly coming from the tech companies, but I'd say it's undeniable that they are leading the charge. Now, in the same paper, in fact, on the same page, in the same column, right, be- right below that article, we have this piece under the headline, Real Estate. Bay Area condo prices go up, comma, inventory down. Subheadline, prospective buyers having more difficulty finding affordable homes. Gee, do you think that bringing 11,000 more people to the Bay Area in April alone has anything to do with that? Well, I don't know. According to the groups being funded by the tech industry and real estate interests, the problem lies not with the fact that they're bringing all these extra people in here and impacting California in a negative way. It has to do with the fact that thanks to restrictive zoning laws, they can't go pedal the metal and build high-rises willy-nilly about the Bay Area in which to insert all of these new workers. No, the focus is elsewhere. A couple weeks back... The Bay Area geared up for what was called Affordable Housing Week. There were festivities all over the Bay Area. It isn't fake news, but it's slanted news. And although I very much do want to do my usual bagging on the tech industry because it seems that somebody's got to do it, and sadly we have not yet been able to bring either Tim Wu or Franklin Foer onto this program. They have written about this topic in a very incisive and intelligent way. But I think right at this moment, I want to go into what is probably our lightning round, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, something we like to do every week, but did not do last week. We would note that it was a good week for political correctness a few weeks back when 18-year-old Kaziah Daum got blasted on social media after posting photos of herself wearing a Chinese-style dress, a Chong Sam, to her prom in Utah. Evidently, a Twitter user named Jeremy Lamb earned 42,000 retweets by telling her, my culture is not your goddamn prom dress. Well, maybe, but reportedly people in China think that (laughs) Americans must be idiots for a panic over so-called cultural appropriation. Yes, it would seem that some people insist that any form of appropriation is by definition theft and an insult. I guess by extension, we in the West should now be outraged when we observe the Chinese elites wearing Western jackets and ties. You know, it wasn't all that long ago when you'd find the Chinese leadership wearing Mao jackets. And a month or so ago, it was evidently a bad week for come-to-Jesus moments, with the news that a 20-year-old man is now suing a publisher for damages over a fraudulent book his father wrote, claiming that his son went to heaven and met Jesus following a 2004 car crash. 
Alex Malarkey, who was left paralyzed by the accident, said two years ago that his father, Kevin, totally fabricated the bestseller and did not share the millions he made. The lawsuit demands that Alex's name be completely disassociated from the book. And it was an ugly week, part one, for student indignation, with the news that some students at George Washington University are campaigning to drop the name Colonials from the university's sports team, saying it's extremely offensive. The name and accompanying mascot, a white man in a three-cornered hat, was chosen in 1926 to honor George Washington, noted to be a military and political hero in colonial America. A campus petition says the name glorifies the act of systemic oppression. And in part two, a similar story, apparently a New Jersey high school principal has had to apologize to black students for the words, party like it's 1776 on tickets to the senior prom, which has a Revolutionary War theme. After numerous complaints, Principal Dennis Perry of of Cherry Hill High School East said it was insensitive and irresponsible of officials not to appreciate that not all communities can celebrate what life was like in 1776. And finally, it was a both bad and ugly week for real, comma, not fake news last month when it leaked out that both the White House and EPA squelched a federal water pollution study after a Trump aide warned that its publication would be a public relations nightmare. Politico.com reported that the Department of Health and Human Services report found that industrial chemicals called PFOA and PFOS have contaminated water supplies near manufacturing plants, military bases, and other sites, and are dangerous at far lower levels than the EPA previously called safe. Last January, a White House aide wrote that the reaction to the study was, quote, going to be extremely painful, unquote, for the administration. Thus, the report remains unpublished. Now, we just celebrated the Memorial Day holiday here in America, where we honor those who have given in some cases, their lives while serving in the military. Evidently, Donald Trump laid a wreath at, the memo- at a memorial of those who were not able to serve because of the fact that they had bone spurs. Speaking of fake news, do you think Donald Trump really did have bone spurs? His most recent doctor has admitted that Trump wrote his fitness report. When the doctor made the mistake of telling the press that he had treated the president for his hair loss, Goons showed up in his office and removed all of his medical records related to the president. I can tell you, after almost four decades in medicine, that that is unusual. And speaking of Donald Trump and bogus news and how they intersect, Trump swore some months ago that all of the records supposed to be released relating to the JFK assassination would, after review, see the light of day in April. Unfortunately, and I know this will be a bit shocking to you, dear listener, the president then reversed himself. The public is entitled to see these records, and by God, we should. Unfortunately, it appears that at least some agencies that have evidently something to hide are going to continue to hide those things. We are somewhat encouraged and, and hope that you are likewise somewhat encouraged by the fact that the reporting on President Trump is now sometimes at least stating (laughs) that his statements are false, right in the headlines. The Washington Post reported on May 27th 
Well, the headline was, Trump falsely accuses paper of creating unnamed source. Now, it turns out that the Washington Post, New York Times, and numerous other agencies who report on the news attended a briefing from a senior White House official, which is supposed to be on background. In other words, the official would not specifically be identified. It was real information, a real briefing, and a real person. Thus, the, fa- thus, the paper had no qualms about <laughs> referring to the statements as false when the president tweets that this person does not exist. Now, given that the office of the President of the United States is something that people wish to revere, or at least show respect for, there's been a bit of reluctance to tell it like it is when the president just out and out lies. It is our hope that the news agencies will continue to call a spade a spade when necessary. Oh, and for any of you out there who think that might be a racial slur, it is not. But you know, it isn't just political reporting we worry about. It's all reporting, particularly things that have to do with businesses, money, corporate takeovers, etc. When Apple and Goldman Sachs put their heads together and decide they want to co-issue a credit card, do you think we should be a bit nervous? The Wall Street Journal was reporting that Goldman Sachs knows it needs to look somewhere for new profits. I don't know what was wrong with their old profits. There seem to be quite, quite a few of them. Should we, should we be nervous about the fact that Bayer and Monsanto are going to merge? In case you didn't notice, the American Justice Department is going to approve Bayer's $62 billion mega deal to acquire the agricultural giant Monsanto. Yes, antitrust regulators signed off on the deal. Writing in businessinsider.com, Dana Varinsky said that both Bayer and Monsanto insist that their union will promote research and innovation and curtail price rises, but farmers aren't so sure. The deal, which has already received approval from the European Union, is so massive it will require regulatory approval in 30 different countries. What do you bet that they're going to get approval in all 30 different countries? And another scary news related to business, how about the fact that China has recently decided to stop importing recycled materials from the U.S.? Apparently, America's in danger of running out of space for its trash. The U.S. has been forced to dispose of 670,000 metric tons of waste this year that otherwise would have been sent to China. At current rates, most northeastern landfills are going to be full by 2029. The rest of the country's landfills will be... reach their capacity by 2036. Ms. Grimlin does point out, however, that there is an awful lot of land still available in Texas. Here's an article out of left field that leaves me scratching my head a little bit, but I think is worthy of mention. According to the Wall Street Journal, this year, 2018, the richest 20% of households in the U.S., which are those with incomes of $150,000 or more, will pay about 87% of income taxes. That is up from 84% last year. According to this article, the lower 60% of households, according to this article, the lower 60% of households with incomes up to about $86,000 will pay no net federal income tax in 2018 versus just 2% of it last year. This does seem to counter the assertion that the rich don't pay taxes, except not really. 
Making $151,000 a year does not put you in the same category as Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. But that's something we need to talk about in the future. Along perhaps with this item from Bloomberg News. Piece by Josh Idelson notes that American workers are still being paid like it's the 1980s. According to the article, thanks to a web of loopholes and limits, the federal government has been greenlighting hourly pay of just $7.25 for some construction workers laboring on taxpayer-funded projects, despite decades-old laws that promised them, quote, a prevailing wage, unquote. The piece notes that over the past year, the U.S. Department of Labor has formally given approval for contractors to pay $7.25 for specific government-funded projects in six Texas counties. Well, maybe if they start putting some landfills down there, they can bump up the wage. Curiously, the piece notes that this situation comes about in part because according to the publicly available data from the Labor Department's Wage and Hour Division, the agency is relying on wage survey data in more than 50 jurisdictions that's from the 1980s or earlier. Yes, these bean counters that work for the government that tell us uh, what the stats are regarding labor statistics, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, apparently some people rely upon this data. Wouldn't it be nice if it wasn't crappy data? Sometime next month we may bring you a student who has been investigating this general area to talk about what he has found, but that's all I'm going to say right now. But let's do two more items from the econ department before we move on. The first is a stat we've cited before, but we need to cite again. According to the Washington Post, several months ago, more than 3.2 million Americans contributed money to federal candidates in the 2016 elections. But 50% of the total funds came from just 0.5% of the contributors. Meanwhile, according to Bloomberg, foreign tourism to the U.S. is declining as other nations come to see the U.S. as hostile to visitors. Tourist spending in the U.S. dropped 3.3% last year, which is the equivalent of $4.6 billion in losses and 40,000 jobs. All right, in the four or five minutes that we have left in this segment, I'm going to pull a Donald Trump and radically change the subject and turn on a dime back into literature. And I say back because we did start off with Tom Wolfe, didn't we? So let's end this segment with a look at B. Traven. My source on this is a copy of Mental Floss I've been hanging on to for the past seven years. To quote from the piece in Mental Floss, On its surface, B. Traven's 1927 novel, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, is a suspenseful, propulsive, can't-put-it-down adventure story about three down-and-out Americans who trek deep into the Mexican mountains on a doomed search for gold. It's a terrific read. But, noted the magazine, it's more than just a page-turner. The work recasts the classic American adventure story as a mythic battle between reason and madness. It stands out as one of the greatest novels about the United States ever written by a foreigner right up there with Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. When Treasure was published in Germany, it quickly became a sensation. So, too, did its up-and-coming author, a remarkable fact considering that no one had the slightest idea who he was. B. Traven was a nom de plume, one of the most successful in literary history. The author's true identity, nationality, and background have been hotly contested from the start. A literary guessing game surpassed only by the who wrote Shakespeare controversy.
For decades, the tantalizing mystery, along with John Huston's extraordinary Hollywood adaptation in 1948, overshadowed the book itself. But in recent years, more and more scholars and everyday readers have rediscovered the original text. The plot of the book is how two down-and-out Americans in Mexico, Dobbs and Curtin, pair up with Howard, a grizzled old prospector, in the hope of striking gold in the Sierra Madre Mountains. The magazine notes that Traven does a remarkable job of depicting the prospector's collective slide into distrust and then outright paranoia. The real action is playing out in each character's head. Should I kill my partners? Are they planning on knocking me off? Should I act in self-defense and fire the first shot? Magazine notes that early in the magazine notes that early on the Mexican bush seems impossibly expansive and limitless. By the time the partners dissemble their mind, reading the novel feels like being trapped in a phone booth with three well-armed maniacs. It is a nightmarishly uneasy scenario, and Traven executes it brilliantly. Mental Floss notes admiringly that in addition to its suspense, the novel has something else most westerns lack: a subtext that scathingly rebukes capitalism and greed. In the standard romantic western, striking gold is the best thing that can happen to a character. The payoff at the end of a long journey. In Traven's work, it's the worst imaginable outcome. Curiously, although the novel broke sales records in Germany, it took eight years for it to be translated and sold in U.S. bookstores. The magazine notes that Traven had long refused to grant American rights to his books, purportedly because he felt Publicity tactics would cheapen his work, but possibly also because more curious sleuths would then go out looking for him. He finally relented, and Alfred K. Knopf published Treasure in 1935. The American version of the book was initially a flop, but Hollywood took notice. Warner Brothers bought the film rights to Treasure in 1941, and director John Huston began filming after World War II in 1947 with Humphrey Bogart in the lead role of Dobbs. When it premiered in 1948, the film was a commercial and critical triumph, winning Academy Awards for John Huston and his father, Walter, who played Howard. The film's success helped Traven gain a strong foothold with American readers, and by 1955, more than a million copies of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre had been sold. The magazine notes that Traven had pulled off the neatest trick of his career. He got Americans to shell out to buy his criticism of their lifestyle. And it... Finally, here in a sidebar to this discussion of the book, Mental Floss speculates that before surfacing as B. Traven, the writer had likely been known as the Bavarian journalist, actor, and anarchist firebrand Rhett Marut. In the spring of 1919, communists briefly took control of the Bavarian government. When the effort flopped, the organizers, including Marut, found themselves on the wrong end of treason charges. Somehow, Marut caught a bit of luck and managed to escape while awaiting trial. He settled in the wild west of Mexico about 1924. If these theories are correct, Marut took on the persona of the mysterious B. Traven to get his novels published while living in a ramshackle bungalow in rural Mexico. The mystery man of modern letters, as Life magazine called Traven, spent his latter days evidently hiding in plain sight in Mexico. Ironically, his ca- anti-capitalist writings made him comfortable financially, and he spent his last two decades living openly, if quietly, in Acapulco and Mexico City before his death in 1969. And now you know the rest of the story. We would note in closing that the film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, contains the classic line that was ranked number 36 on the American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest movie quotes. In this case, it was badges, We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges.
Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.